Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And today, uh, I'm going to have to say, maybe my most famous guest. <laughs> Sorry, Gary. <laughs> Emmy Award winning composer Gary Malkin, M A L K I N. Go Google him and then come back and make sure you listen to every word. Hey, Gary, how are you doing? Hi, Dick. It's good to be here. We met with Ancient Secrets of a Master Healer Sunday morning. Zoom talks. Miracle experiment called by Dr. Clint G. Rogers. So since then, uh, I've done a little exploring about you, but I don't get too much old background story. And, you know, it's nice to know uh, a little bit about where you came from and, and, and how you got into music and what kinds of um, inspirations have caused you to be doing the fantastic projects that you've been doing uh, in the last 10 years, at least, if not longer. Funny, yeah. That's, well, my whole career, I've been blessed to have such an interesting opportunity to use music in very unique ways. So are you saying like, how did all, what's a, what's a guy like me doing in a place like this, right? <laughs> how did you get there? Yeah, all right. <laughs> so, well, before we go there, I think I should say, just so that people who are used to listening to you uh, get a little sense of context on, you know, it's probably not every day that you have an artist, performer, composer who fits into the category of being a, um, a greater good emissary. You know what I mean? A person that's interested in uh, repairing the world kind of thing. And um, I've always been that in my career because I was the guy... Um, in, when I had my music production company that was exclusively focused on TV shows, films, commercials, industrials, this was between 1980 and roughly 2000 for those 20 years. I, I was known in San Francisco. I had a, the largest music production company in the Bay Area that was arguably the, the most respected because I had all the national clients and I was the only guy in LA, in San Francisco who had an LA career. I, I did major network television. I had feature films. And, but even during those 20 years of being a veteran composer for media, <clears throat> I had the very epiphany that I had in early in my career in 1981 was such a coming of age experience that helped me see that my life's really about making the world a better place. And I, I mean, I, I'd love to tell that story. Please, uh, I'm, I'm all ears. Yeah because then it would give you a little reference point on why I'm on this show and why you're interested, perhaps. I don't know, maybe something else interested you. I don't know. But, um, but in, in, so I could always go back to how I started music and that's a long time ago. <laughs> and I'll just say the short story is when I was five years old, was at a friend's house. We were newly, uh, we had newly moved. My mother, I was waiting for her to pick me up and I was roaming around this foreign house waiting for my mom and I saw this black box with a bunch of white and black things on it. And I, 
I just felt drawn. And I put my right hand on the, on this, I don't know why I thought it would make a sound, but intuitively I just knew and I pray it. And immediately I felt like, like I could breathe again. Like the, the language that piano was, was a, the, the, the world of music was the first language that I feel like my soul resonated with because it had a certain kind of presence that gave back to me something that I never got any of that in my family. <laughs> you know, it was a dysfunctional Jewish family and nobody was present. Everyone was in, you know, first chakra, second chakra, just interrupting and grabbing food. And then it was a lot of confusion, right? So the moment the piano came into my life at five, I went, I can understand this language. And my hand gravitated to a melody and my left hand gravitated to a harmony and my mother walks in to pick me up and the friend's mother says, I didn't, does he play the piano? And she, I guess, I didn't know he was studying. And my mother is in shock. She never heard me play piano because I never played piano before. And she said, I didn't know either, you know? And she said, you better get, get, get that kid a piano. You know, and she said, yeah, I guess so, you know? So, and I just could play anything I could hear from the earliest age. And, and within a few years, I was wanting to be Leonard Bernstein. Um, I started writing music at eight and I started my first musical at 10. And, you know, I was, I was uh, in love with, I was a, a suburb of Broadway and I wanted to be a film composer, a conductor, a composer and at a very young age, right? So the story that I was going to reference was early in my career, way back in 1981, I was uh, ghostwriting uh, it was before my music production company was formed, which was 1983, actually. In 1981, I was ghostwriting for a, a well-known composer in the area named Bernie Krause. And we were hired to do the music for a film called Dark Circle. And it was about, as a result of the Freedom of Information Act, it was about a movie that showed that nuclear energy in peacetime was destroying American citizens because of the pollution of the nuclear energy downwind from Rocky Flats nuclear power plant near Denver. I don't know if you know about it, but um, I'm gonna put myself in gallery so I can see you. There we go. So um, it was really an interesting and difficult score because it was so painful to see so many people suffering from uh, the standard nuclear industries that were established as generic issues so that these were at the time, 1981, 1980, there were all the producers that were underwriting PBS, right? So you couldn't attack the validity of nuclear energy in those days because it was a generic issue. It was like, what do you mean? You can't attack it, right? Um, but the Freedom of Information Act allowed, enabled these filmmakers to create some really interesting documentation that proved. And within one or two airings of this film, uh, on TBS, when that was the very beginning of Turner Television, it, it 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 shut down and it became it was a huge phenomenal controversy that that opened up the door to people understanding. But its first showing was um, the opening night at the New York Film Festival in New York City at Alice Dulley Hall, and I was 28 years old. It was my first major motion picture that I had scored. It was a documentary. And I was in the back of Alice Tully Hall 
and there's it's a very the first 30 45 minutes very depressing you know like what are we doing we're destroying ourselves and the one of the motifs was that you'd see the migration of these geese that represented sort of the the perennial space and time of nature that we had the, like Rachel Carson said we had the capability to stop it right and so at one point in the film towards the last third it said well maybe the experts or we can't rely on the experts and maybe there's some hope here that maybe we're the ones that can be the ones that are the ones we're waiting for right so they wanted the music to even though there wasn't really very much visually to indicate they wanted the music to elicit hope and that there was hope that we, we were the hope right and so much of the film was very dark and depressing. And then all of a sudden, and so they wanted me to, so when we were in the studio, I was sick, literally sick with a stomach flu. I'm in between takes, I'm throwing up in the studio. So I really, I gave it all my, I gave it all, you know? And there I am in the back of Alice Tully Hall and I'd written a beautiful theme featuring oboe and orchestra. And honestly, I will never forget this as long as I live. I was young and the air was thick with people not breathing very deeply because of all the despair in the room. It's about 800 people or something. I'm in the back standing on the back wall. And I swear, I know this is a longer story than I wish it were, but there it is. I, the moment the theme came in of hope and optimism, I literally almost saw the air clear. And suddenly 800 people suddenly started breathing deeper. And it was the difference between hopelessness and despair transformed into uh, coherence and optimism and hope. And, and the music was the thing that changed everything. And suddenly I went, oh my God, this is so much more than entertainment. This the responsibility and the privilege that being the composer of film provided made me realize that I had the capability to create the music that would make the difference between people feeling hopeful for their lives and receptive to this possibility that something could change to feeling depressed and endlessly hopeless, right? And that's when I really started to realize, oh my God. So I became the guy in the Bay Area where every time there was a public service announcement, every time there was a socially responsible film about raising money for cancer research or AIDS or whatever, they'd say, let's call Gary, you know? And I, the nights when I would do those scores and I'd come home at night, man, I didn't get any money from those jobs, but I felt a million bucks. I, I just went, this is what I was made for. I, and, and it wasn't until the year 2000, 1998, when I had a very serious accident after a 20 year career of being, getting Emmys and success in the media, when um, I was hit with the reality of my mortality. And that's when I realized that I needed to change what I was doing and focus entirely on music for wellness, music for mindfulness, music for supporting people at life transitions, at life and death, music for making life uh, more emotionally and spiritually healthy. And that's what I devoted my life to 23 years ago. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's a long story. Hopefully. <laughs> Each of our stories can be 
a long story. <laughs> and we're partly in the same business. Uh, I've been in health and wellness uh, teaching for since the, the 70s myself. I'm, re I'm a bit retired, but now I got a, a radio show where I can talk to people like you that are still cranking it out in powerful ways. Thank you. Yeah, no, this has been, this moment is the best moment of my life. I, I might be an old guy, but I feel really young because I feel like I'm just getting going. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the, the, and ironically, the COVID crisis has created, whether people are conscious of it or not, has created a, a more palpable purpose and need for what it is I do because people are feeling so disconnected from one another. They're feeling so afraid. They're feeling uncertain. They're feeling um, uh, more at the mercy of what happens when we cut our hearts and souls and bodies off and we end up becoming human thinkings and human doings, which the world has gotten ourselves in this chaos because we've believed in the Cartesian myth. I think <laughs> therefore I am, right? That, and, and so uh, music is the universal language of emotion. Some people say it's the universal human language mm -hmm. and it's the one that everyone understands. So my mission is to come up with, I really believe we've just scratched the surface, Dick, mm -hmm. in understanding how applied musical resources and experiences in every sector of humanity, business, academia, healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, that in every sector there's a design solution that literally takes three to five minutes at the beginning of every Zoom meeting to drop people in to heart coherence, gut coherence, and soul coherence that utilizes the, the multiple intelligences of the human experience, which hasn't been tapped in. I mean, some people say that only 5% of the brain is utilized and the rest is subconscious. Well, you can also say that only one of the five intelligences, the linear rational brain, is the one that's utilized and acknowledged as, you know, grade A stamp, that's the credible way to communicate, right? Well, what about the vibrational frequency of heart coherence? Mm -hmm. And we all now know 25 years of proof that heart, the heart brain has all kinds of validity. And what about the gut brain? And what about our soul and spiritual intelligence? These are all things that can be awoken and integrated and addressed through the common denominator of the universe, which is vibration. And music is sculpted vibration, right? I've got to take you back to uh, Ma and Pa Kettle on the farm. Oh, really? Did you ever come in contact with any of the Ma and Pa Kettle movies? See, I'm a, I'm a bit Oh, yeah, of sure, sure, yeah. Okay. Well, somebody struck on the idea of playing music in the barn where the cows were being milked <laughs> and in the movie the message was playing music gave more milk from the cows <laughs> it was one of those you know kind of coming in the back door with the very message that you're giving uh if it works for cows it, wow what does it do for people and so many other things there's yeah. so many applications, right? And it's exploding now. You know, the sound healing movement is exploding and scientific research around music being used for multiple different uh, modalities and, 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 and results are popping out like 
you can't believe right now. There's just so much evidence-based research that shows not just that music therapy works, but that specifically music-infused tools actually address this sense of incoherence and fragmentation mm -hmm. that is uh, damaging our world today, mm -hmm. that's, that's reinforcing this uh, hierarchical thinking that is, that, is that is separating us from the rest of life. And, and I love the work of Brian Swim and the universe story that says that we evolved out of the earth, that we're that that everything that is on the earth is our kin. You know, 98% of it is all the same minerals and carbons and all this, right? So this this glow, this manifest destiny approach that that we own the earth and take over the indigenous people and all that, music can bring us back to an intent an, an inherent remembrance that we are a part of the family of life. And that sounds rather woo-woo and lofty, but it's actually the truth, right? And, and the place that I've focused most of my attention on in the last 20 years, Dick, is, is, is based on a statistic that I heard um, by a very beloved friend of mine who's a famous author, Dr. Ken Druck. And he, he, he's been the guy on... Larry King and another and Dan and on CNN, whenever there's a national tragedy, mm. he's a master uh, of grief. And he did a, a kind of a qualitative research when he was working with one of those schools that lost a lot of students that said from gun violence. And he said that 90% of all aberrated behavior in human beings can be attributed to unassimilated grief. Now, mm. think about that for a minute. It's so common sense that, duh, right? But when you can correlate aberrated behavior, meaning anything from yelling at your brother to abusing your wife to shooting somebody because they, for car rage or whatever, we're talking about the, the, the reptilian brain's reaction comes from as aberrated when grief is not addressed and assimilated, right? And we live in a perfect storm where we live in a culture that avoids illness, grief, loss, and death. Well, if we are avoiding illness, grief, loss, and death, and aberrated behavior comes from unassimilated grief, hence what we're dealing with right now in our culture, right? right? So my goal, along with my former partner, way back in 1998, when I had that accident, was the work that we created that is to date of all the things I've created, and I have like, you know, 30 albums and umpteen da-da-da, like all kinds of things. If you go to my website, wisdomoftheworld.com, that only chronicles the stuff I've done in the last 20 years. It doesn't chronicle the 5,000 pieces of music I wrote from 80 to 2000. But wisdomoftheworld.com addresses the first order of success, which was we went around and recorded the voices of wisdom keepers and asked them if you were going to die tomorrow. What would you say to your loved one? Mm -hmm. And we asked Thich Nhat Hanh and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross before she died and um, Rabbi Zalman Shachter, the national humanist rabbi and the director of the ecumenical department of the Vatican. And we asked them and we didn't accept just what they wanted, what they wanted to say right away. We went, we want to feel like you're talking to the person you most love in this world. Wow. Can you replicate that? And they go like, oh, you know, yeah. almost very private, right? We captured it 
and then I, I scored it to an 80 piece orchestra as if it were motion pictures. Wow. So instead of images, the sound of their voices, the authentic, tender, of beautiful voices of someone talking to a loved one, about pondering around the reality that if they were gonna to die tomorrow, what would they say? And this work, Dick, has been the most profound gift in my life. Mm. And it's been the reason why I say that death has been my greatest teacher, that death is the mother of all life, that death is, makes, as Deepak says, death makes life possible, right? It, you would think, well, why would we focus on something morose? The irony is when you can live with today is a good day to die, and you can live with death, as Carlos Castaneda said, with death right on your shoulder. You are alive. You're filled with the preciousness of the, and the gratitude for life. And there's no way you could treat another person in a way that you'd regret, right? So this work came out in 2001. We're celebrating its 20th anniversary. And it's touched a million people in recontextualizing the way they say goodbye to either life or to their loved ones. And as a result, they have in their hearts, instead of a memory of loved ones having wires coming out of every orifice, mm -hmm. they have someone that's been loved and cared for because their loved one is not terrified. Mm -hmm. They're accepting death as a part of the cycle of life. And that's why if there's anything, if I had a year to live, the only thing I wanna talk about now that the COVID crisis and the, the global grief crisis has happened, which is, Think about if half a million Americans have died, and let's say each one that died has 10 family members and friends who are mourning them. That means 10 times 500,000, right? So our goal is to get graceful passages known by millions because it's a comforting tool that helps people come to a sense of acceptance and peace and gratitude and frankly, heartfulness, you know, heart-centered mindfulness that really changes people's stories. And, you know, here are these 500,000 people that died without having a loved one by their side. So this work, even though it's 20 years old, I feel it's just starting to get, you know, to be able to do its work and service. And this is the thing I've been, it's one of the things I'm most passionate about, so. Well, that is graceful passages. A companion for living and dying. Yeah, and it's, it's there's a whole page of it on my website. Hmm? On, on wisdomoftheworld.com and um, I'm just going to put it in the chat window and also hmm. graceful passages hmm. a companion for living and dying so yeah so that what I realized was that's the greatest contribution I could make hmm. is helping people alleviate the anxiety that they feel that comes from this terror of the finality of death rather than connecting to the things that live on forever. So I, just, you know, just yeah. last night, uh, and maybe we'll call this a synchronicity, I was talking with a friend whose husband died four years ago. And she told a story for the first time. We talk often, but first time I'd heard this story, the very day that her husband dies, another friend was there talking to her husband and said to him, it's okay, you can go. And he went. And the wife 
has not forgiven the woman for doing that because her role was to take care of her dying husband. And, and she doesn't realize that one of the greatest gifts that could be given is the permission to take the adventure and the leap into the next realm of, of existence that let, I believe that exists on the other side of the veil, you know? And that's yeah, one of the greatest gifts that she, that that friend could have given her. But she, you know, cause we're all gonna, I, I, the, 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 the Bhagavad Gita has this, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is a 5,000 year old text, right? right? The Hindu religion. And they have this phrase that says, what is the most remarkable thing in all of the world? And it's the most beautiful reflection of human nature. 5,000 years ago, it said, paraphrase, the most remarkable thing in all the world is that everyone will die, but no one ever thinks it's going to happen to them. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I'd like to maybe ask you about this woman, though. We can't tell the wife that she's bad because she isn't forgiving the friend. <laughs> There's she has a, a grief that she's working through after, you know, the aftermath of that. You know, by the way, this is a perfect example of unaberrated behavior that's as a result of unassimilated grief. That's what I'm trying to get at, yes. Because she's projecting her unassimilated grief about her husband and misplacing her anger. And, you know, people say that resentment and unforgive, not forgiving is the poison you give yourself when you can't forgive someone else, right? It's self-poisoning. Um, so it's displaced grief. It's unowned grief. Mm -hmm. And it would be wonderful to give uh, herself up. I mean, there are a lot of ways to do this, but to give herself an opportunity to, to connect with the spirit of her husband who died ah, yeah. and ask him, how you doing? And you were gonna go there sooner or later and you know to give the power of that woman mm -hmm. to the, that all that power to that one woman mm -hmm. it's such a shame because it's a denied grief yeah yeah i don't know what the solution would be but that's very poignant a person perfect example yeah uh i wanted to mention another uh interesting thing that just happened while i was waiting for our show to start today uh i went to your one of your websites and uh I saw the album All Is Well. And there I, I could have listened to the long version or the short version. And I had about 20 minutes, so I did the short version. And by the way, you are an, often an improvisational piano player, let's say. Yeah, I, I, I love contemplative improvisation. Yeah. So I'm listening to this, and, and there's this, this uh, continuous background sound. A drone, right. The drone, right. And then you're playing and playing, and, and all of a sudden, I think of Fred Hampton, the Black Panther, because I had just watched a documentary on Fred Hampton, and I hear there's a new movie out about that. And I started crying. Wow. Here's your music playing and it's eliciting a grief. And it goes from Fred Hampton to Michael Brown to 
Breonna Taylor to Martin Luther King, you know, Malcolm, you know, it just, it just radiates out and, and in come the, the Native Americans and, and the Holocaust, you know, it just, it was like this, ah, just a grief for all of this. And, and I just wanted to share that with you. That That's I beautiful, Dick. That's really beautiful. And what, what I love about that is it reinforces uh, the sort of the, the rise on debt that when I created music, what it, you know, you've heard about the slow food movement starting with Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Then there's the slow money movement, which is a lower rate of rate of investment. You know, like the not not a hockey stick investment. Well, I'm a big advocate of the slow music movement, uh -huh. and the reason is is what I found out. Greg Braden and Bruce Lipton said that that when you create extended periods of time of deep quantum field stillness of coherence, that it creates the physiological conditions for your mitochondria to actually rise up like plants to the sunlight into the unlimited field of, of the quantum field of unlimited possibility potential, right? And there's science that proves that when this stillness happens, our natural mitochondria align to the natural expansion and healing that the universe wired us for innately, right? So that's what valid, when I heard that, I heard it two years ago, it just, I got so excited because I've intuitively felt since we created Graceful Passages to accommodate, again, remember, there were words, deeply felt words mm -hmm. that were spaced out carefully, tenderly, slowly, so that the score could enhance your ability to listen, not just with your mind and your ears, but with your heart and your soul. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me into improvising with very slow, spacious time. And what I found is that when you slowly play, create music that draws you into presence and spaciousness, it creates the room for the unattended grievances and the unresolved places in your heart to come out naturally, the way those mitochondria start to align to the field. And I, I, I am convinced that the malady, I, I have a term in, as uh, you know, I, I speak a lot to healthcare audiences, and I jokingly say that I've come up with my own syndrome because nobody ever respects you if you don't have a syndrome in healthcare to address. So I came up with my own syndrome that was called the before the COVID virus. I called it the epidemic of our time, and the syndrome's called awareness fragmentation disorder. Awareness and, uh, fragmentation disorder. Okay. So if awareness lives in what I call the five portals of intelligence. The mind, which is houses not just the linear rational, but the left and right brain of the sense of the Buddha mind, the unlimited mind, right? Then the heart, like I said, the gut, brain, these are all neurological places. And then the soul and spirit related, the soul being the intimate end of the spectrum of our connection to the great mystery, right? So when we're fragmented from any one of those sources of intelligence, which each have in their own vibrational frequency, their own nature. Mm -hmm. That's that, then we get fragmented and then we're disconnected from the whole of our human, that human capacity. Mm -hmm. And that what happens when we get disengaged is what you're looking at in the culture right now. The disengagement creates the illusion that we are, you know, not stewards of the earth, but we're, you know, 
controllers of it, right? You know, there the this disengagement creates the aberrated behavior. It creates the divisiveness, this fear, this incoherence. So I I feel honestly the way Rudolf Steiner felt that music has the capacity to change healthcare to the point where you go to in you know 50 years you go and you get tuned rather than get a symptom fixed you know yeah. or like Bruce Lipton is so <laughs> wonderful to say if if we have uh, 25% of our our healing is because of our faith the placebo effect he says why not invest more money in increasing the placebo effect? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, which is saying whole, the same thing, yeah. That whole epigen epigenetic story is a brilliant, yeah. brilliant yeah, yeah, exactly. And for those of you who don't know what epigenetics is, read the biology of, or listen to the biology of belief. Yeah. One of the most mind-blowing recognitions that thoughts are things and that our interstitial biochemical fluid is hundreds of times more uh, consequential to our physiological state than our genetics, you know, mm -hmm. and, and frankly, you know, when this is a beautiful example, when you were listening to all is well, you were allowing, you know, we're in 80% water, right? Mm -hmm. So like Emoto and the, and putting beliefs into water, our water container in our body is receiving the vibrational fluids of this incredible new tuning system that was designed to create states of stillness and coherence from Europe. I use this new tuning system, tuning system with that piece of music. And then what happens is your 80% water in your body upgraded its vibrational frequency. So suddenly you could be coherent with unexpressed grief mm -hmm. that allowed itself to be released yeah. because our natural state is to release that which wants to be released, right? Yeah. It's so beautiful how that's when that's when your interstitial biochemical fluid, the way Hartman says that you have a thought of worry or, or negative negativity, and fourteen hundred biochemical reactions will be elicited and brought into the, the bloodstream that will undermine the capacity for your immune system to work properly, and vice versa, positively in the other extreme. So it's amazing how long it's taking for the science that's being proven around the integrative story. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing how stubborn and difficult right. this Cartesian right. hyperlinear myth has grabbed a hold of our society. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, and the COVID virus has provided, this is the same thing. If we were focusing on our capacity to be healthy and have our immune systems working, instead of focusing on all of the American diseases that have made Americans so vulnerable, you know, with the diabetes and the cancers and the heart disease. <laughs> I mean, it, it's such common sense that we would focus on what would strengthen us against this disease, but everybody's focused on the 11th hour ventilators and going to the yeah. hospitals. And it's yeah. just insane. It, it's not that I, I want to disparage the beautiful, amazing, Work that healthcare are doing at the first, at the at the first responder level, mm -hmm. but the insanity of not looking at the root, right? And that's consistent in every aspect of our culture. It's it's so, it's so adolescent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to give another uh, plug to. Uh, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, 
Oh yeah, my my beloved friend uh, uh, Steve Behrman, who's I he's part of my community in the Bay Area. Yeah. And yeah. and Bruce Lipton wrote this book, uh, Spontaneous Evolution, that tries to give us a sense of that history and cause and how the the spirit and matter uh, have sort of woven a a, a bit of a, a double helix in a sense. Uh, and we're we're coming to that point where we are. spirit and matter are honoring each other again, uh, and that's what you're you're saying. It's it's been so hard to get to this place. Well, it's coming. Right. Well, I want to give a plug that the film I just scored is called Thrive, and it's the sequel. And for those of you who have never seen it, I put it in the chat. It's thriveon.com, mm -hmm. and the first hour will convince you of the reality of the quantum unified field and the torus as the structure of life itself. Anybody should absolutely see the first one that came out in 2011. It's controversial. Mm -hmm. Many people have issues with some things in it, but I have scored both of these films and I'm really proud mm -hmm. of having been a part of those projects because they are advancing this story mm -hmm. and the credibility of it scientifically. And the more that people see it, the more that uh, people will recognize things like why Clint G. Rogers' book is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, because whether you even believe in the miracles that the Ayurvedic health uh, espouses, which I fully believe because I've seen Clint with Dr. Naram for 10 years, case after case after case. But I really want to recommend Clint's book, Ancient Secrets of a um, Healer. Yes, so a master healer. Right. Master healer, yeah. So the reason I bring him up now is no matter what you believe, tools like music to bring you into essence, tools like the radical belief in the possibility of miracles, tools like taking a hold of your health and being responsible for it is like these placebos that have game changer effects no matter what you think about the particulars. <laughs> and that's why I think Clint's book is a classic of, of major proportion because it affirms the importance of us taking a hold of ourselves and being responsible for our health rather than going to a doctor and saying, heal me, fix me, give me a drug, you know? So yeah, I, I'm clear we agree, right? <laughs> yes, uh, and I have, by the way, have watched both of the Thrive movies Oh, nice. I saw the first one as soon as it came out and uh, showed it to my health class and, and tried to, uh, it, it's, it, let me just say, it did not uh, have as much of a feeling effect as it was a stimulating uh, brain effect, uh, yeah. head brain, you know. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because one of my, I love the filmmakers. I'm very close to them and I'm very proud to be a part of it. And I, they had so much information. I begged them to cut off 30% of it so that you could give them a transmission of an experience. And they did more of that in Thrive too, but it was never enough for me. I, <laughs> I you know, agree. You know, speaking of that, I would like to share an experience, even if it's just, I think that sharing anything more than three minutes in this context will be a bit of a stretch, but three minutes is a lovely thing. And I wanted to use an example of this idea 
so people understand what it means, this slow music movement, right? So I'm gonna, if I may share something sure. um, that you might've experienced, I think you might've experienced this on the miracle experiment call, but I wanna share it because I wanna give people an experience of what it's like, two things, what it's like to allow music to entrain you into breathing deeper and experiencing presence in a way that all of us don't naturally go to without some kind of training wheel, right. some kind of entrainment tool. And then the other thing I want to play this is there's a transmission that comes with if you, you know, what you appreciate appreciates. So if you imagine, you close your eyes when you listen to this and you imagine that your future self or your higher self or someone you love, like a grandmother or grandfather who's no longer with you, says this to you, just notice, like get an assessment of who you are now in terms of how do you feel in your heart, your soul, your body on a one scale of one to 10 and say, okay, I feel about a four or five. And now listen to this track and let's see, imagine your future self was talking to you in this way. So just close your eyes. And this is an example of the medicine of music in training us to that state of stillness that Greg Braden and Bruce Lipton talked about that allow the mitochondria in your cellular structure to, if you did it more often a day, every day, a sense of aligning to the unlimited possibility of the field. And that means the best version of yourself, which is the, the center of the mindfulness experience, right? So here it is. Do you know how beautiful you are? Have you ever stopped to look at yourself? To see yourself in your truth? In the clarity of who you are? In your magnificence? only you could see what I can see. If only you could know what I know of you. You would stand before yourself. In awe. would see yourself you would feel yourself you would know yourself and so I invite you in this moment to see beautiful you are to see yourself in clarity 
in simplicity, in your true nature. I invite you to see yourself. So one of the things I want to bring attention to is the moment when the music fades away, the muscle that allows for spacious presence grows just a little bit more and helps your ability to let that mitochondria experience happen in your life more and more. And it's when, when the music is sort of, sort of like the ocean and the shores, the meeting of the water of, of music and you know, water and land, the ocean and the land and the land, right? And as the water fades away, you have more capacity to integrate the power of that watery, spacious experience in our earth, earthen grounded life, right? And that is a muscle we develop with stretching our capacity to let presence fill our day with bigger breath, longer breath, more spacious time. That's what I call heart-centered mindfulness or, my, or heartfulness. And music has a unique way to bring us there. As you can tell, I mean, people who are not inclined to go there, go there more easily with a track like that. What was your experience? It was, uh, actually, it took me back to a, a Gene Houston exercise where she had us uh, get in touch with our IntelliKey, <laughs> our fulfilled self. and. Uh, and see our fulfilled self and have an exchange of how beautiful you are and how much I love you. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then all of us could use a larger dose of self-love. I know that as I've lived my life, the one most elusive thing has been to come to a real palpable relationship with my inner parent that can mm -hmm. say, can look in my own mirror and say, I love you, Gary, and I'm here for you, and I've got your back. And it's been the most elusive and challenging thing in my life, the hardest thing for me. When that dynamic is addressed on a regular basis, what I'm noticing is the more I love myself, I'm more of a blessing to whomever I talk to. Mm -hmm. I, I'm actually not part of the problem anymore. I'm part of the solution. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Hey, we're glad about that too, Gary. <laughs> so what is your next project? Well, it's interesting you ask because um, as a result of loving myself more, uh, my endless uh, MO being a New York Jew of, of birth was that I was never good enough. It was never enough, never enough, never enough, right? 
now that I am looking through different eyes, there's hundreds of things I've created that I never deemed worthy enough to share. So my big project now is that I have easily 15 more albums that nobody's ever heard that that I'm uploading to uh, the digital universe so that I'm not the boomer that has only a tiny smattering of my work represented on Spotify and, and, and Pandora. So that's a huge project because it has a whole, you know, there's a metadata sheet and there's like 20 things to fill in for every single piece that I've written, the length, the genre, the description, the author, the, the time, et cetera. So I'm in that project of kind of upgrading my digital footprints so that preparing for me to, if, to a world when Gary's not around, Mm-hmm. And my work can continue to serve, right? Mm-hmm, right? And that's and also during Thrive, I just finished the new website, and I am so proud of it. I <laughs> I love. I'm not done with it yet because we have all the digital uploads, but I'm very proud. It's ninety percent done. That's wisdomoftheworld.com. And um, my what's next is I'm working on a training program because I'm no longer interested in just. I I'm always available for scoring projects that will add, make the world a better place. So if this, if there's a anybody out there that wants music for a, either a film that's making the world a better place, or who wants their thought leader words to be set to music, which is what my specialty is, um, one of the most famous ones is Brother David Steindl Rast's piece on gratitude has 40 million cumulative views on on YouTube and Vimeo uh, called the Good Day or Gratitude by Dave, Brother David. That's with uh, Louis Schwartzberg, movingart.com. And I've done a lot of these spoken word and music pieces that that is the genre that I want to be known for called alchemical wisdom. So anybody that wants their words set to music, I'm available for hire for that. But um, I'm working on a training program Hmm. called Vibrational Intelligence, harnessing harnessing the power of music Mm -hmm. to... Uh, awaken coherence quantum coherence and and a fulfilling life right so all the tools that i've developed musically will be put in terms of being experiential curriculum to a eight or 12 week course that will help people understand how to use music as a medicine that rather than remove symptoms although it does enhances your this capacity to shift the biochemistry in your body to be uh, at the vibration of health, wellness, and abundance, right? Mm-hmm. And and to help you understand how to utilize that, whether you're a healer yourself or whether you just want to use it for yourself and friends and family. So by the end of 2021, I will have a course done that wow. I will make available and it'll be a training program as well as a course. And I'm excited about that. It's going to take yeah. a year, but I'm working on that now. And that's pretty much what I'm involved with right now. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, Oh, no. Also, the habits of heroes. If you go to wingspanfoundation.org, it's a heart-centered mindfulness program for corporate leaders that want to focus on being agents of the greater good. It's a partnership with Jeff Patnode, and it's the wingspanfoundation.org. And it's a training program for corporate leaders and for uh, people who want to be a part of greater good projects. Mm-hmm. That will make them agents of the greater good in a more efficient way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my project partners page on my website shows all the things I'm involved in now that um, that would reveal the answer to that question. 
So as you spoke earlier about uh, this unassimilated grief, was that the phrase? Uh, and it's causing this aberration in our culture. In our world. In our world, right. People like the Wingspan Foundation are the counterculture in a sense. They're part of the team. And, and maybe you could just briefly address how many people and organizations there are that are networking to do what you're uh, envisioning? <laughs> well, you know, one of the greatest nonprofit NGOs on the planet is an organization that I've been a part of for 20 years called the Pachamama Alliance. Yes, Lynn Twist. Out of San Francisco. So I've been part of that uh, core community, the inner circle, creating the music for the media for their Awakening the Dreamer Symposium that's gone all over the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And so why did I bring this up? Because you asked me, oh, because Paul Hawkins is a constant contributor to the, and Paul Hawkins' book. Blessed Unrest. He's the one that talked about the millions of organizations that he calls very brilliantly the immune response from the planet. Yeah. to the disease of disconnection, disenfranchisement, and colonialism, and all the things that have caused so much damage, right? right? So there are millions of organizations. That's one of the great gifts of, I hate to say it, but the, the former president who must not be named, whether you believe in, you're behind him or not, the great gift that he gave us is he created a huge catalyst to people to want to step up to the plate, to want to be a part of creating a more unified, more compassionate, more conscious world. So there's a, a quality of all of us warriors that want to make the heart-centered universe be the norm rather than the, the counterculture. Paul has said he wants me to score one of his words. I, I've got a, about 800 hours of thought leaders that I've never set to music yet. And my dream is to get philanthropic film composers who would be able to get my content of these recorded interviews that I've done over the last 20 years and actually set them to music. So it'll be a new genre like hip hop became. So it's a new genre, setting wisdom to music to address the wisdom deficit of our time. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say that it's a pretty remarkable time even with the divisiveness and the fact that 70 million people seem to believe that the election was stolen, just having a, a person in the White House who exhibits human compassion and empathy at a, at a level that wasn't being uh, reflected, to me, I feel is really, really important. And um, if we're not raising our vibration of how we care for one another and how we stand together as uh, that so much more unites us as human beings than divides us. I just feel like we're in, in the middle of a potential renaissance where things sadly are going to get very difficult around climate change, around finances. And basically what I say is, how are we going to show up with this much suffering? No matter how the outcome ends up, are we going to become compassionate allies in a unified world of people that where kindness and the sense of being unified to want to help our fellow man becomes more the norm 
as things are going to get more difficult on this planet from climate change and other things. And I think that for me, there's nothing more important than being an answer to the question, what would love do? Because right now we need that more than anything. So it's a good way to end our talk. Great work. Uh, because music as the carrier of intention becomes a catalyst to awaken us to our innate, what we're innately made of. We are love, we are spiritual beings on a human journey that Dr. Keltner of the Greater Good Science Center from Cal Berkeley says that we were evolutionarily wired and anatomically created to be uh, servants of the good. There's this book called Born to be Good. So he was proven scientifically that evolutionarily we are designed to stick around longer when we help one another. And when we look at one another as agents of the greater good. So my goal is to be the person that creates music, one of the many that awakens music to that recognition that we are spiritual beings on a human journey, sharing this great privilege to be agents of love. And I hope that um, I clearly have met a kindred spirit in that regard with you. Bless your heart. What a wonderful hour. Thank you for the invitation, Dick. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And audience, uh, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care and talk to you soon. <laughs>